You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, guys, welcome to the show. This is a uh, very interesting episode that it's a great way to start out the year with. What we're going to be doing today is actually featuring a panel with two certified financial planners that are in our financial independence community. I know that historically speaking, there is this almost natural bias or natural belief that financial planners exist outside of the FI community. And what I hope that we'll find today is that there's an obvious synergy between these two groups. And really what we want to do is we want to talk to, in this case, Kyle Mast and Danny Kenny, both who are in our community, both who are certified financial planners and may have a different perspective on the perspective that Brad and I have stumbled our way into over the last several years. And so it'll be just an interesting way to, to merge these two trains of thought. What we've done is we actually went to our community and said, if you had access to a certified financial planner, what questions would you have? We had hundreds of questions come down on that pipeline. And then we had our community vote on, of all the questions that were mentioned here, which questions do you absolutely want to have answered? And we were able to filter that down to 10 to 20 questions based on what we can actually get to in today's episode. We're going to just kind of throw these questions at Kyle and Danny, see what comes back. And hopefully as a community, we just get better together. So to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing well. This should be a very fun episode. I've been looking forward to it for a while. It's a rare opportunity, really, to have a couple of CFPs who are in our FI community, in our Choose a FI community. You know, I've emailed with these guys over the last year off and on, and they said they'd be up for a roundtable, and, you know, we made it happen. Not only that, but like you alluded to there, in the Facebook group, we got the input from our entire community on what kind of questions we want to ask from a FI perspective, and I think that's that's what'll make this interesting. So, yeah, with that, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yes, we're very excited to be here. We're going to be going into the questions relatively quickly. But before we do that, what's so fascinating about this is that you guys are so ingrained in our own FI community. And so I'd love to hear just a little bit about your backstory. So maybe, Kyle, maybe you could start. Can you give us kind of just your own path and how you found the FI community and what FI means to you? Yeah, definitely. Thanks again for having us on here. I really appreciate what you guys are doing with this podcast. It's just an an amazing thing. I've referred many clients to it to uh, that kind of lean the FI way. So thanks for what you guys are doing. So my background is I'm 32 years old to put myself in the millennial box there. I'm the owner of a firm. It's just me. I have no assistants or no other advisors at the firm. I'm a fee only financial planner, which means I only charge fees either hourly or retainer or as a percentage of assets under management. And we can jump into the fees later. I'm sure that's one of the questions that we'll want to cover. My path to FI, I'll start where I'm at right now and then back it up a little bit. Right now, if I sold my business, we would be, my wife and I and my 10-month-old son, we would be at, I guess, what would be called lean FI. So we could probably do it at this point if I sold the business. Our, our industry is, there's pretty easy multiples on how much a business is worth as far as how much revenue you're bringing in. 
and I guess the journey to that would be business ownership and real estate ownership. We have a few rentals and also uh, just general uh, savings and investments uh, that you guys talk about on this podcast all the time. Um, so kind of three different areas there. And I really have liked the last several podcasts, you guys have focused a little bit more on the business asset class and real estate a little bit too, because I think that's an, an important piece there. But yeah, that's in a, in a quick nutshell, kind of where, where I'm at on the journey to FI. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And Danny, can you tell us a little bit about your story? How did you find the FI community and what does this path look like for you? Sure. To start off, I am a 30-year-old with a wife and a seven-month-old daughter. I have been working in the planning space for about four years. And before that, I worked in public accounting in uh, tax. So I have a tax and planning background. I think I was exposed to financial independence in college, probably through Mr. Money Mustache. And since then, have just been trying to follow the principles and learn as much as I can. Um, And that's part of the reason why I went into the tax area, as well as, you know, moving to planning. I wanted to learn as much as I could and help other people get there as well. So that's where I, or my journey, so to speak. Where I am right now, I am at a larger planning firm. We have 58 employees Um, a bunch of planners, 28 planners, and uh, 10 CPAs. So uh, we're a little bit of the opposite spectrum from Kyle with his individual firm there. So a little bit different perspective, perhaps, um, which I think will be interesting to add to this conversation. Thank you both for sharing. All right, guys, super excited about these questions. We set up a poll and our audience voted on which ones they they wanted to have answered. Wonderful questions. And there were a few that there was an obvious theme to them. And I I think for many people in the FI community, one thing, you know, we tend to be a contrarian bunch of people and we also tend to be DIYers. And so, you know, we just want to do our thing on TurboTax. At the end of the day, we like to think we're doing it perfectly and it's hard to convince us that you don't know what you don't know and that we should lean on somebody else. You know, I don't even know if I'm convinced of that at this point. Let me just read a couple of the questions we got and you'll see the obvious theme there. Andrew says, why should I use your services? In a world of index funds, what value do you add? And we got another one from Brent saying, how do you plan to stay relevant in a world where technology will only continue to make the world a more automated place, especially in an industry that is basically inputs and outputs at the nuts and bolts level? So you kind of see that little, that, that common theme there. So I guess a great place to start would be, could you maybe speak to at least initially the value that CFP or certified financial planners provide to their community and to the people that they serve? Yeah, definitely. Um, Those are really good questions. And that's why we kind of wanted to be on this panel. I'd maybe make a distinction right off the bat between uh, financial planning and investment management. So I think in the past, the financial industry has really focused on investment management and maybe trying to beat the market and pick the hot new investments as opposed to the planning, whereas the planning is where the true value is provided. So from my perspective, I would say that financial planning is something that everyone, even a DIYer, should at least do some sort of one-time consultation. For the FI community, it's like fixing your own car, whether you want to spend the time to do it, spend the time to be on YouTube to learn everything, to DIY it, or if you want to outsource, if it's not worth your time, if you'd rather spend your time somewhere else or if you can make more money somewhere else. It's maybe a, a loose analogy to working with a CFP or a financial planner. That being said, even a DIYer, you might not know 
what you're missing. And in the FI community, I would guess that probably the best fit would be for someone to do a simple hourly fee with a financial planner to sit down for one or two hours and ha- give him, show him all of your documents and have him look through your tax return, look for things that you might be missing, like maybe a, oh, a $3,000 loss a capital loss that could be offsetting your ordinary income, or maybe he notices that you didn't remove your mortgage insurance from your uh, mortgage payment when you uh, got below the 20% mark. Um, And many things are exponential. So an hour time with a CFP that does it day in and day out might, you might find something that exponentially over 10 years is going to make a huge difference in your world. So there's a couple different models in our industry as far as fees, and we'll jump into that later. But there's the planning side and the investment management side, and you kind of have to distinguish the two of them in deciding whether or not you want to work with someone. You know that the IRS code is on the Internet. You can do everything. Every, we don't know anything that you can't find on the Internet for sure. Uh, it's more of a consolidation. It's why you would buy someone's book instead of read their entire blog that they wrote that has all the same content. It's kind of the same principle. And Danny, did you want to add anything onto that? Yeah, the only other thing that I would add in is often we act as a therapist or a psychologist or a mediator, so to speak, between spouses. Potentially, a spouse may not be on board or not understand. So we act as an educator and bring both spouses on the same page when we're working together. So that's a a large value add there as well as the behavioral coaching when folks are transitioning to retirement, we're going through a market downturn, we're a steady hand to provide them the backstop that they may need to continue with the plan to achieve their goals. Absolutely. I totally see that. Let me just add one more comment that we got from Matt and then I'd like to get Brad's feedback as well. But Matt actually said, I use a fee-based certified financial planner and I love him because over time he finds me savings that more than cover his fee. So most recently he discovered that my CPA had not been getting me my Obamacare subsidy monies. To me, that's a hidden no-brainer of the CFP equation. I think it would be interesting to hear kind of that dynamic and how it pays for itself. And I heard both of you express that. Brad, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I was going to ask Kyle as a follow-up. Like, I, I totally understand getting one of those one or two hour sit-down meetings. Like, what does that look like in practice? Do I come in with all of my documents and you, you sit and look for things that I'm not picking up? Or are you looking for like a comprehensive plan? I guess I'm just so unfamiliar with this. Like, just talk me through like what that initial meeting would look like. And realistically, how many hours someone would have to spend with you to get the full benefit of your knowledge and service? And obviously, I know that's, that's kind of a loaded question, and, and the full benefit is an ongoing thing. But you know, talk me through like a, a one or two times, what I'm, if I meet with you, what, what I'm going to get out of it. Yeah. Um, it really, there's a lot of different business models as far as what financial planners are due. So I'll, I'll tell you what I do, and this is definitely not an advertisement for my business. I'm at capacity, and my wife will not be super happy if I get a whole bunch of inquiries after this podcast and the time that it'll take. So, but this is how it would work from my end. And I think it's kind of typical. There's a couple different levels. Usually a lot of times you can just engage a financial planner for like an hour meeting. So for me, I charge, I'll do a half hour prep hour meeting, half hour follow up with email comments. And basically I have, we'll have a whole list of documents, tax return, W2s, investment uh, statements, mortgage statements, basically everything in your financial life uploaded ahead of time so I can look over it briefly and then a sit down or virtual meeting where 
we'll walk through things and maybe pick out a few things that I have found that might make a big difference. And for something like that, that's a really brief meeting. It would be more of an hourly charge. And you could, in the industry, probably 200 to $300 an hour is probably pretty standard as far as it's kind of the same realm of uh, an attorney's fees. But there would be a lot of benefit there. And that, that's just kind of a Q&A session. If you're looking for a full-on financial plan as the industry does it, you're looking at a really wide range of anywhere from $2,000 to $10,000 plus, depending on the complexity of your situation, estate planning, um, trusts, a lot of different things like that. The CFP is kind of the quarterback that coordinates between the CPA and an attorney, things like that. I don't do that as much. I have two different, I do a Q&A session like I was talking about, and I do an ongoing retainer, monthly retainer fee that I charge that give the clients a one-hour meeting every year, a couple hours of prep, a couple hours of follow-up, and uh, access during the year for anything financial that comes up. And that's more of someone that really wants to offload and doesn't want to be DIYing it themselves. Um, Does that answer your question, Brad? Am I getting to that? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And I guess I'm curious, you know, for someone in the FI community, for, you know, you talked about that comprehensive financial plan, right? You know, two to $10,000 or thereabouts. Like, you know, obviously you can say this in an unbiased fashion since you are at capacity and are not looking for new clients, but like, would that make sense for someone in the FI community who may have a 50% savings rate? They understand, you know, they're, they are a DIYer. They understand how to invest, you know, in, based on all they've read across hundreds of articles and podcasts and things like that. Like, is that overkill or do you think like they're going to get something of value that they may have missed? Like, I guess that's that's what I'm looking yeah. for, the value. I, I certainly see the value of like, hey, let's have a one hour meeting. Let's take a real quick look. You can ask any of these questions on your personal situation. But like, so I, I get that. But the more comprehensive plan, like, do you think that's valuable for a FI member? Yeah, that's that's a good question. In my experience, and this is real general, but I would say no. I would say the FI community does such a good job of researching things on their own, planning far ahead. That's the biggest thing. A lot of financial planning, if you do little bits and pieces of it throughout your life and over time, you take care of a lot of things that don't otherwise would build up and would need to be corralled in a financial plan that needs to basically revamp your entire financial situation. For the FI community, I really, with the clients that I have worked with in the FI community, I have only done these Q&A sessions just because it doesn't make sense for them. They like spending the time researching themselves. I should say we like, I'm just fortunate (laughs) enough to be in the industry to get to do this all the time every day. Um, But yeah, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think sometimes maybe if someone just feels that they would sleep better at night knowing that they've had a professional really look through that. But you really need to make sure that you're also working with a CFP that understands the FI community. And that's something that you will definitely run into. There will be CFPs out there that are not as familiar with early financial retirement strategies. Yeah, Danny, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, to jump on there, I think that there is some value to be had from a full financial plan. I'm working on one right now. Actually, it's less about finding things, but more about triple checking the calculations and you know providing the confidence to take that next step. And if you know you're confident in your own calculations, but you may not know what you don't know, right? 
and having a professional run over everything in the gory details, and that would necessitate a full plan. I think that is where the value resides, either working through this with a spouse that isn't on board all the way or making sure that you're not missing anything that could have a detrimental effect. I think this question kind of lends itself perfectly to transition to this next one, which is talking a little bit more about fees. So Kyle, I know you said that you're a fee-only planner and it's based on what sort of services that you're providing. I'm curious to get both of your takes. And Danny, I guess I'll start with you. And this question is from Steve. He says, ideally, how should a CFP get paid by their clients? Is it upfront cost? Is it a percentage on investments? Should life insurance policies be built into that to subsidize the back end? You know, what are your thoughts on how this model works? Danny, can I get your thoughts? Yes. There are a number of different models in the financial planning business or industry. Kyle has the hourly and you know project-based fee. My firm has an hourly fee, but we usually charge it up front to do a full plan. And then on an ongoing basis, we charge assets under management if a client wants us to manage their assets. Um, all of the different fee models seem to have uh, some sort of conflict of interest that could be out there. So if it's uh, assets under management fee, there might be a question about you prepaying your mortgage or paying down your mortgage, and there could be a conflict uh, for an advisor in that space. Not that I think that really comes up much. I think planners under the fiduciary duty are working towards their client's best interest. Under the hourly model, maybe you, you, as a client, you would be worried about having an extra long phone call so that another hour could be billed. I don't think that's an issue either, but some clients might feel that it's a concern. Another model that's interesting that I've heard about recently is a percentage of net worth, not necessarily under ass, or assets under management, but a percentage of net worth as well as or in addition to a percentage of net income. So we're helping you get a higher salary and we're looking at the whole picture. So paying off that mortgage isn't going to change your complexity. So why should it lower the fee that you pay for your advice? So that just seems cumbersome to me and it might be more applicable to this community or maybe the hourly model is the best way to go as well. But aside from the different fee models, I think that there needs to be enough value for both sides. I know that some planners charge a very low fee, and uh, I don't understand how they're getting enough value to provide uh, good, valuable advice to a client. If you know I'm charging a $200 a year fee, say, that accounts for one hour or maybe a half an hour of my time a year. I don't feel like I can provide sufficient value in that context. So, of course, everybody wants to get the most bang for their buck, but you also get what you pay for. So at a higher fee, you're, you're likely going to get higher caliber of advice or you know, a more consistent delivery of that advice. All right. There's these different models out there. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't think Brad and I are trying to come on this show and say, this is what everybody has to do. I think we've kind of made our opinions known on how, and generally how we would approach the situation. But what I am interested in, and I think this will apply to both of you in your mind, at what wealth or income level or 
distinct characteristics, maybe wealth building characteristics, maybe rental properties, a small business, a certain amount of wealth. You know, at what point in time is it just obvious that this person needs to be thinking about a CFP? This is far outside of the realm of where you're just totally doing this on a DIY basis. And have you seen a pattern over time of, oh yeah, the clients that really are getting the most benefit from me, they have these characteristics. So I'm going to read a question from Derek and he says, at what wealth or income level do you need a CFP? I have never utilized one and don't believe I would derive value, but I don't believe I am the norm for the population. Uh, Kyle, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is kind of changing, I think, in our industry for the better. Danny went over the fees really well. Um, the nice thing is you guys, you've got two different perspectives as far as fee models on this podcast. Over time, the only way someone who didn't have a large net worth was able to work with an investment firm or a CFP was usually through a commission-based mutual fund salesman, pretty much. Um, and then you'd get some advice along with that, and the salesman would earn an upfront fee of 5% of what you invested or somewhere along those lines. Now there's a lot of models out there, um, and this is something that the XY Planning Network is is kind of really elevating. It's an organization that's doing retainer fee models a lot more, but to focus on being able to provide the advice to people at any income level. So my answer to the question would be everyone should talk to a CFP at some point on some level. If you can only afford one hour, pay for an hour. If you can afford to have one on retainer, have one on retainer. And that sounds, retainer makes it sound like it's super expensive. Like it's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars every year and it's going to be wasted. But it's basically having a financial checkup every year to make sure, like Danny said, there are not things that you don't know that you don't know. I have seen that the, that retainer model, the ongoing service to a client, at least for my clients, has had the most benefit because it life changes. Within a year, within three months, things happen. Kids arrive, family members pass away, inheritances happen. A lot of things change from year to year. So that's where I see the most benefit. But for the FI community, again, it's do it yourself. You save a lot of money by doing things yourself. So it really depends on what someone's preference is, but I think everyone should engage a financial planner at some point. And of course, I'm totally biased in that. And that's why I do what I do because I'm passionate about making sure people have good financial advice. But yeah, that would be my answer. Guys, I have a question about actually, how do you find a CFP, like a, a competent CFP who maybe hopefully understands five principles like that to me is always the hardest part. Like, we in the FI community have, obviously, we're contrarian, as Jonathan likes to say, and we also have very specific needs, right? So I know, ideally, if we could find accountants, CPAs, and CFPs in our local area that are fire, I don't know. Fire enthusiast. Yeah, there we go. Pyros. That's, that's perfect. Yeah, nice. <laughs> then, uh, then it would be great. But like, how, how would one even go about doing that? Sure. To find good planners, I would recommend there's a couple of websites that are for organizations that CFPs belong to. So first of all, there's the CFP board. Um, there's also NAPFA's website, the Financial Planning Association, or like Kyle mentioned, the XY Planning Network. Those are all groups of planners, and you can search within those groups by their niche as well as their geographic region, if you actually want to see them face-to-face. A lot of planners are moving to a virtual space to do their planning work, so a geographic location wouldn't necessarily be 
a reason to include or exclude a planner. But searching by the niche would be something that would be a little bit more applicable to this community. So searching there first is something that I would do. And then I think that there's a a wealth of information in the FI community right now, whether you ask on the Facebook page. Maybe this podcast will spur some sort of discussion about folks that are using financial planners. Maybe they were in the closet about that before and they can come out about that and you know, spark a discussion there where people can find pre-vetted financial planners and use that route to find somebody that's great that would work with them. Now, a good planner should be able to understand the five principles, even if they don't practice them themselves or if they're unfamiliar with them, they should still be able to understand them and apply them. But that might be taking more of a, a gamble on somebody, although I don't expect that that would be an issue that they could understand and apply them to your specific case. And really, our community of planners really specializes in different areas. So some planners specialize in doctors or attorneys, whereas there might be a a planner out there that specializes just in the FIRE community. So that's something to look for as well. So guys, I heard you mention the word fiduciary earlier on, and I'm very curious if you could dive into that because Andy actually asked, why is being a fiduciary important to you and the continuation of your profession? Can you tell us a little bit more about what that actually means and how it affects how you practice? So a fiduciary, basically, to boil it down really simply, it requires that you act in the best interest of your client, ahead of your own interests. And that may seem obvious when you're talking about finances or serving a client well, but it's not so obvious in the financial industry always. There are different Because of different business models and the way different companies are set up, someone could actually act as a fiduciary in a certain part of their business, but not act as a fiduciary in another part of the business as far as maybe selling insurance or products as opposed to assets under management or fee-only hourly work. You kind of have a dichotomy that happens sometimes. So so I think it's it's very important to ask a financial planner, are you a fiduciary in all the services that you provide? That's a pretty clear question that will get to the root of exactly how they work. And then asking how they get paid, it, it will help you see any conflict of interest that are there and there are in any business model, but that will just kind of bring it out more. But being a fiduciary is, is very important. And there is some legislation that's being worked on to push that forward a little bit more in the industry. But it's, it's not, in my opinion, to where it should be yet to be able to make sure that clients are being treated fairly all the time. Danny, I'm curious your thoughts on this and and basically like how airtight this fiduciary rule is. Like it always, it sounds great to me in theory, but like how many people, how many planners who are fiduciaries still have their clients in mutual funds that have 1% expense ratios? Like, you know, is, and the answer might be zero. I don't know, but I suspect it's not. And if so, like who, where's the teeth behind this fiduciary rule? I guess I'm just curious about it in general. I think that being a fiduciary uh, is extremely important, like Kyle said, and it is the way to establish trust within the industry. We are registered investment advisors, and a lot of the planners are as well, and that really does have teeth. That's regulated by the SEC, 
So if there is a concern that a client is not acting in the best interest of a, or the advisor is not acting in the best interest of a client, um, that can be uh, taken to court and the SEC will step in and that will be very problematic for that advisor. But I think it's very important to distinguish, like Kyle said, some planners are fiduciaries and in some aspects of their business, and they really approach it this way. And I've heard this um, from folks saying, yes, I have my fiduciary hat on right now, but next we're going to talk about insurance. I'm going to take off my fiduciary hat and put on my insurance advisor hat. So that's something to definitely be aware of um, to make sure they're acting as a fiduciary in all aspects of their business. Kyle, I'm curious, how would a regular client just off the street, even know how many different hats there are, as Danny just described, for these fiduciary rules? Like, how how would I even know? Like, do they have to tell you that? Or is it just, okay, this guy's going from one area where he's a fiduciary to one area where he's not, and I don't really know. Like, how, how would a regular client figure that out? Uh, it should be more transparent than it is, probably. But it's going to be... And it should be the responsibility of the advisor or the planner, but it's really going to be the responsibility of the client to continue to ask the question, you know, are you, when you're giving me advice on this insurance, are you acting as a fiduciary or are you receiving a commission to sell it as a product? You just have to continually ask the question. And if you ask the question ahead of time, do you act as a fiduciary in all aspects of financial planning or advice? And they say yes, then they're held to that. It's again, as Danny was saying, there there is a lot of teeth behind it. The Investment Advisors Act of I think 1940 is where, after the Great Depression, they really put in some laws that really dictate it. But those have become blurred over time. Um, and maybe an illustration that I heard is uh, if you're going to buy a car and you go to the Toyota dealership and there's a person you walk up to and they say they're a car advisor. Well, sure, they're going to help you figure out if you'd like a minivan or if you'd like a sedan or if you'd like a pickup, but they're going to advise you on a Toyota because they're under that umbrella of that company. They're not independent fiduciary car advisor. However, if you go to Matt's car advising on the corner that is, I guess, a fiduciary in car advising, he's going to ask you a lot of questions about what's the best fit for you whether it's a Honda or a Toyota, and I'm sorry I'm picking all foreign cars. It's what's coming to mind. Ford, whatever. Can Ford get a shout-out, please? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's where it's really, in in so many things in hiring professionals, the owner, it comes down to personal responsibility. You have to ask good questions and learn the questions to ask ahead of time to make sure that you're being treated fairly. Okay, so that's really the big takeaway here, guys, as I'm hearing from both of you, is walk in and ask your planner or your advisor, whomever we're talking to, if you're a fiduciary in all aspects. Is that is that really the safest way to do it? Yes. Yep. Good to know. All right. So it's the beginning of 2018. There's a tax bill that will have very real implications for all of us. I guess the question is, and this is from Elizabeth, how should, if at all, our tax saving strategies change in light of the new tax bill being passed? Do you have any thoughts on that that you could share? Maybe, Danny, I'll go to you first. Definitely. Uh, There are a lot of things that are going to be or proposed to change in the tax bill. And as of the recording of this podcast, they haven't hashed out or at least made public all of those changes. 
based on the proposals from the House and the Senate, there are quite a few things that are going to change that affect uh, the FI community. And uh, But from the onset, I want to make it clear that it doesn't make sense to change your whole outlook and strategy just on this tax bill, because it's likely to change between now and when it's permanent or when it goes into effect. But then it's likely to change five or 10 years down the line again. So uh, don't set things up permanently based on what they're proposing at this time. But to get down to the nuts and bolts, there are quite a few provisions, including uh, you know, house hacking is a strategy that a lot of people use. Those rules are going to change. It's been two of five years you need to be living in the house to get that gain exclusion. That's proposed to change to five of eight years. Uh, if you're already in the house, it might be a little late to uh, change course at this time, but it's something to consider if you're looking at doing this going forward. Additionally, there's the Roth recharacterization. Uh, they're repealing that. That's been proposed um, as a repeal. So maybe you were doing a Roth conversion and you did too much or something changed in your circumstances and it would be you'd be better off having never done the Roth conversion. Uh, you can't undo that anymore. Uh, that's slated to go away. And then I think the other big one is 529 plans. They've proposed to allow 529 plan distributions uh, for um, pre-college, so maybe private elementary or high school or middle school, of course, and that you could take distributions from those plans. So that might offer some savings and planning opportunities there, which might be helpful. Uh, I think it remains to be seen how everything gets shaken out, but those are things to consider. Now, for actual things that we want to get done before year end, if you have any state estimated taxes due uh, in January, we would recommend that you prepay those. As long as you're not an AMT, you can get that benefit in 2017 versus 2018 when it's slated to be uh, removed. And additionally, if you want to prepay any charitable deductions or charitable contributions, uh, it would be a good thing to do. Pull that forward into 2017 as well. Man, I really wish this were going to be released uh, before the end of the year. Unfortunately oh. for you guys, this is going to be you're going to be hearing this in January 15th. And that's going to be okay. a gosh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. <laughs> it's going to help me, though, Jonathan, because I'm going to go make my state tax payments today. <laughs> awesome. All right, Kyle, anything to add to that? I don't think I have much to add to it. Danny covered it pretty well. I mean, I think what he said at the beginning to really don't try not to uh, freak out too much about these changes. You know, one of the things that the FI community does so well is really high savings rate. And you can really weather a lot of different tax changes, a lot of different government changes when you are, you have that type of mindset. But some of the things that he covered, you know, I'm from Portland, Oregon. So we have a high state income tax here and the, the proposed 10000 limit on state, local, and property taxes for itemization. It's something that we'll be watching for sure in Oregon. I have clients other places too, but that, you know, high income tax states and a not so popular one, the possible FIFO uh, Senate provision of first in, first out as far as capital gains realization. There was a lot of pushback on that one. I'm guessing that one probably won't go through, but you never know. But just to wait and see, it's hard to, this is what I've been telling my clients, just to try to wait and see. But like Danny said, 
if you're doing the strategy, especially of itemizing one year, standard deduction the next year, itemizing one year, kind of pulling some charitable contributions into one year, and then uh, or doing it a year before you would w- otherwise do it so that you can switch those different deductions each year, this might be one of the last years that you can do that. Okay. All right. Good to know. All right. Let's go to our next question. So this was from Rick, and it's a very broad question. Rick asked, what are the most important steps to consider? as we shift from accumulation to sustain to our drawdown phases. Kyle, why don't we start with you? Yeah, the difference between uh, accumulation phase and the drawdown phase, it really depends on your own specific situation, your own uh, tolerance for risk, and the sources of income that you have coming in. If it's all from investment portfolio income, or if you have some from real estate, or if you have some good grandfathered in pension income, all of that plays into how you should invest. So it's it's kind of a tough question to answer uh, as far as a specific situation because there's no general rule as far as what course of action you should take. You really need to know yourself is probably the best uh, advice that I can give in that situation. If you're someone that's going to panic when the market tanks, you're really going to want to move to things that are more conservative, at least in the first few years of retirement so that you can weather those first few years and then perhaps increase equity exposure later on to try to um, continue to hedge against inflation and get enough growth for retirement. If you're an early retiree, say age 40, as opposed to to age 65, you run into everything else that's been talked about on this podcast as far as early withdrawal, penalties, Roth conversion ladders, other things that you need to take into account, the taxes that you're going to be paying, all of that kind of plays into what it should look like, the differences between when you're accumulating and when you're drawing down. Uh, Danny, anything to add to that? The only thing that I would add is that this is an emotionally very tricky time to switch from having employment income or job income to pulling from your portfolio. So it's important to not only consider how the nuts and bolts are going to work, but take care of yourself emotionally and mentally in this at that stage as well. All right, guys. So for our next question, let's talk a little bit about psychology. So Emily asks, what are the biggest mistakes that you see a lot of clients making and what should they be doing instead? Danny, what are your thoughts on this? I think the biggest problem that we see clients, and it may not be as applicable to this community, but it's it comes down to overspending. So whether that means they're spending more themselves on on whatever their lifestyle is or indulging or enabling their children to um, spend more than the kids should. And that eats into the parents because they're enabling that and providing the funds for that. So that's the number one issue that we see with our client base. But things that might be more applicable to this community is a question about risk tolerance. Um, Are you taking more risk than you need to or maybe not enough? And understanding what that is before there is a downturn and you jump out at the bottom. Um, So that's another thing. Spouses differing on the plan or being uninformed. So maybe you are gung-ho about early retirement, but your wife or your, your spouse is not interested or doesn't even understand it and doesn't believe you. Um, so getting everyone on the same page is, is, is an important part of the process and uh, helps out clients quite a bit. And then finally, chasing high returns. When, say, you only need 6 or 7% to make your plan work, why are you chasing 
even riskier asset classes to try and earn 14% if you don't need such a high rate of return and therefore exposing yourself to more risk. Danny, you talked about being on the same page with your spouse. I'm curious if uh, you talked earlier about the kind of armchair psychiatrist aspect of this where you know, getting people on the same page is, is actually important. Like, do you have any strategies for that? And I guess also as like a second somewhat related question, like communication wise, like with the two spouses, like, do you generally speak with one person? Do you try to contact both of them? How, how does that work? Like on a nuts and bolts level? So part of it is when we come back to the risk tolerance question, Certainly, spouses usually differ in their risk tolerance, so that's something where we do it separately. We have a questionnaire for the husband and the wife, um, and each of them answer it separately. Then we come back together and say, look, you know, the husband wants to take twice as much risk as the wife. So it's certainly a discussion that we have. Uh, the discussion is not separate. So you know, if they're not comfortable speaking to each other, about it, then we act or step in at that point to facilitate that conversation. And I think it's very important for the spouse that is not as interested or is not as in tune with the finances to be heard. Um, I think a lot of the times, myself included, I just kind of run the show, so to speak. And, you know, it's uh, my wife is not necessarily as informed as she should be. And sometimes I think that creates a little bit of discord. So that's something that is extremely important. And sometimes it takes a third party to facilitate that conversation. You know, really, not to interrupt you, but what really strikes me about that is how valuable what you just said is, not just, you know, from a psychology perspective, but from a money perspective. So if money is one of the number one roots of fights in a marriage and divorce is probably the most dangerous thing in your life in terms of devastating your financial future. If you can mitigate that risk, especially when there's a significant amount of money on the table through having a mediator that is trusted by both sides, I don't think that can be understated, the value of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Danny's spot on on that. The other thing too is when, when and if the spouse that is the money spouse passes away, you now have a person who's familiar with the financial situation that can guide the widow or the widower through both that really emotional time, but also to make good financial decisions going forward, whereas they're not maybe naturally bent toward doing the money and it was their spouse that that just passed away that was. Kyle, as far as record keeping goes in in a situation like that where someone is deceased or or just generally speaking, like how do you counsel your clients to keep their records like Literally, again, the nuts and bolts of have a filing cabinet with seven years of tax returns, have a fireproof safe and maybe a safe deposit box. I mean, do you guys get down to like that kind of nitty gritty with people and like advise them on like how they should be keeping records? Yeah, yeah, we often do. Some clients are really good at it naturally uh, and they'll keep, you know, 15, 20 years of tax returns kind of overkill and some are not as natural at it. But yeah, we definitely get into that, that information. A lot of stuff now, though, is so stored online. And if they're working with a financial planner, a lot of times, their financial plan, their tax returns, their life insurance policies, important information is 
held at the advisor's office because it's necessary for us to do good financial planning. So there is kind of a repository of where we are holding it, but just you nailed the things. It's not super complicated having a fireproof safe where you can save those important paper documents, but having something like Dropbox that is a cloud-based software that you can store some of those things in. One of the things that I try to have clients do, and it doesn't always, I have very few clients that do it, but my wife and I do it. We have an annual planning retreat where we go away for two or three nights and we look at our goals and our finances. And that's, I'm definitely the person that does the financial planning for us. But my wife is an accountant by trade, and she's very smart, and it's really good to have her input. But that's our annual State of the Union where we go over and ensure that we're on the same page where if something happened to me or if something happened to her, this is where everything is located, and this is what we need to do. Oh, I'm totally doing that, Brad. An annual State of the Union, that's going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to apologize to Jonathan's wife right now if she doesn't (laughs) like that type of thing. (laughs) I think she'd be relieved, probably. I'm kind of one of those gung-ho, go and do stuff. And like, if something were to happen to me, how would she ever figure out all the hundreds of different logins that I've you know, developed over the last several years? Like, I just can't imagine what, how much chaos it would be for her to catch up on all that. Brad and I were just talking about it in an episode recently, and I think that there's a lot of value to being on the same page, especially if it's done the right yeah, way. Definitely. Guys, Steve had a good question here, and he said some studies have shown that both dead people and people who forget about accounts are some of the most successful investors. What is your go-to speech for talking a client out of an, oh my God, sell everything, the sky is falling mindset? Danny, I'm curious how you treat your clients when they do come to you in that kind of absolute panic. We're going to sound like a broken record here and say that it goes back to your risk tolerance. You know, once you figure out what your risk tolerance is and what that really means is what amount of risk do I need to take to achieve my goals and then making sure I am taking that amount of that correct amount of risk, uh, that really plays into this. So if we do a plan and we decide that you need to be at a 60% stock, 40% bond allocation, then that means that you can afford to lose the amount of money that goes along with that allocation. So if you're afraid of this being the top or a bubble or whatever, we know that your plan is built to withstand the customary drawdown or negative returns that would go along with that investment allocation. Beyond that, if that still doesn't settle the client down, I think the next question is, What's the plan to get back in? So if you sell out now, would you wait for the stock market to go down 10% and then you're jumping back in? What if you do that and it goes down an additional 10%? Are you going to be freaking out again? You know, once again, we drive that back to the risk tolerance question. And I think that this is where we're providing the most value for our clients is having this discussion. So Danny, somebody calls up in an absolute panic and says, I want to sell everything. You know, like the stock market went down 17% today. I'm freaking out. You know, I get that, that you try to calm them down, but like, what if they can't be calmed down? Like, I mean, this might be the most naive question of all time, but like at that point you have to sell everything, right? Like, are there any safeguards for like a client's own stupidity, if you will? And I, and I say that very tongue in cheek, can a client sit down with you beforehand and say like, Hey, maybe I'm prone to these kind of things. Like I want to put some safeguards in just so I don't freak out. Like, is that even plausibly conceivable? 
we have had situations where this has happened and where client or when clients call in and say, I need to sell everything now as their advisor, we will sell everything, but we won't let them go at that time. We'll say, look, after you get everything sorted out and you're comfortable again, we need to have you back in, uh, run through your plan again and make sure that we're all comfortable with how you should be investing going forward. So maybe you were a 60% stock and you can only really tolerate the volatility associated with a 20% stock portfolio. But as far as making a rule in advance to say, if I call in, don't listen to me, I don't <laughs> think that we can do that and that it would be advisable. You'd be cooler if you could. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And Kyle, I'm curious. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Like what you would say to a client who called up in, in an absolute panic? Yeah, no, Danny covered it really well. Yeah, we definitely can't what is it, tie Odysseus to the mast so that he doesn't you know, hear the siren call or anything. That we, we can't do anything like that. I think the only thing I'd add is that, you know, from what I've seen in working with clients, I have to do a really good job of when I first take on a client of framing with them ahead of time the expectation that the markets are going to go down. And we are in a, you know, the, the explosion maybe that's a big word, but I would say the FI community is really exploding right now. It's getting a lot more notoriety than it has. And I have often wondered if that is due to a very long bull market where there are a lot more people that are successful in index fund investing and haven't had to deal with the emotional downturn of uh, the Great Recession. A lot of people have come into it right at the recession or later. Um, So it'll be interesting going forward what that looks like and how how people are able to hang in there. But I think what I also do is help remind clients what your goals are. You know, are you retiring this year when the market is is plummeting? If not, if you're five or 10 years out, this is an awesome buying opportunity to continue the course. And that just comes from identifying your goals far ahead of time to make sure you're understanding this is what we're going to do if this happens. So you can kind of reference those goals when you hit a bumpy space, but ultimately we have to, if a client says, I want everything in gold, we have to do it, which is really sad. I think this speaks to risk management and uh, it's well-timed. Jeffrey gave us a question. He says, risk management is often overlooked. And I, and I think we've had some commentary on that recently as well. Uh, what advice would you give to your clients in terms of risk management outside of investments? I kind of think that, and this is not true for everyone in our industry, but the FI community, since they do a really good job of trying to pick apart our industry and make sure that we are doing what we should be doing for clients, this is something that we maybe don't do as well. We talk about risk tolerance in the aspect of just the investable market securities, you know, your 401k, your non-qualified accounts, your Roth IRA, your IRA. But risk management, really, it needs to be an entire life situation. And that's why I really try to advocate for clients that have the ability to do it, to look at other things like owning your own business is a way of managing risk. You can control, you are the insider information of your own own business. Real estate is another way to diversify physical real estate, not necessarily a REIT uh, that's traded or even a non-traded REIT, but something that real estate inside information is still allowed. You know your local community, you know your city, you know if it's a bad deal or a good deal, if you're doing your research, all of that takes time and it's definitely gears towards some DIY, but that's a way that in managing risk, I try to 
try to remind clients that it's an entire life situation, not just looking at your portfolio. And if you can have other types of income streams that can get you through a bumpy spot, that makes it a lot easier to stomach as well. And Danny, any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. There's some other things that you can do from a risk mitigation standpoint, and that would be insurance. Umbrella insurance is a, a important consideration, and that is to cover against any liability claims. Say you hit someone with a car or someone slips on your driveway and sues you. Umbrella insurance is a great way to protect yourself against that um, beyond what your homeowner's insurance or your car insurance already covers. Additionally, properly titling your accounts, um, that provides a lot of liability protection as well. If you use tenants by the entirety titling, uh, that means only creditors that are coming after both you and your spouse can access those funds. So if you get sued individually and you have all of your money in a tenants by the entirety account, that's unavailable for that creditor. So that provides some easy, free asset protection there. Danny, you talked about umbrella insurance. I know this is going to vary depending on client, but like, do you have a general go-to amount that you suggest people start with? Yes, we recommend getting umbrella coverage up to your net worth. If you talk to folks that work in this area, they always tell you to get more and that your coverage level, it doesn't matter based on your net worth. If you kill someone in a car accident, they're not going to just sue you for your $750,000 net worth. But I think that's kind of a red herring and that you just need to get some level of coverage and to pick a number or a general rule would just be to cover your net worth. Guys, so that's a perfect segue because Christine asked a question about long-term disability. Is long-term disability insurance worth getting? It seems like the own occupation benefit is so short that you would be better off self-insuring with an emergency fund. I guess, uh, Kyle, why don't we start with you? So there's the two, I want to make sure there's a distinction between short-term disability and long-term disability, and sometimes people will mix the two up. So short-term disability can often be covered by a healthy emergency fund. And that's short-term disability is usually like six months or less than, less than 12 months in general. Uh, long-term disability is something that everyone says you need to have life insurance to protect your family, but long-term disability, a long-term disability is something that happens more often than someone dying early. So having long-term disability insurance is a very good idea. And that's something that I recommend to nearly all of my clients up to a point of self-insuring because when you do have, as your net worth builds, you do end up getting to a point where you can cover that long-term disability portion. If something were to happen to you, your net worth can kick off essentially what the long-term disability policy would send to you. So it's kind of like any other insurance, you insure what you can't cover yourself. You offload that to the insurance company. But yeah, I do think it's an important part of a, of a financial plan. Danny, how about you? Yeah, I was just looking up the other day um, and saw a statistic that says one in eight people will become disabled for five years or more. So really, the, the long-term disability insurance is there to protect against the catastrophic issue um, that is going to derail your financial plan. 
So having that disability coverage, and they're usually, so the own occupation benefit may be short, but then there's an any occupation benefit that continues until usually until 65. So that would provide a backstop should you be disabled to the point that you can't work at all. So I think it's very important to protect against that catastrophic issue. And one of the things that comes to mind is there's long-term disability, but there's also long-term care. And I imagine that the community that you serve is asking you about this. And my understanding is that the prices and the premiums have just gone so far through the roof that it's becoming more and more. It's just a harder decision with each additional year. What are your thoughts on long-term care? There's been a retrenching in the long-term care space because a few years ago or 10 years ago, say, everyone came out with these policies and they didn't know how to price it correctly. So recently in the last year or two, uh, there's been a major change in pricing and therefore even the premiums on the policies that have been outstanding, uh, those premiums went up significantly. So there's certainly a level at which you can self-insure against long-term care, but that net worth level is very high. We usually say in the four to $6 million range, you can afford to self-insure there. So when we're talking about catastrophic long-term disability issues, we're just trying to replace your income and whatever that income is. But long-term care is providing care for you to be in a nursing home or a continuing care facility. And those usually run in the $10,000 to $15,000 a month range. So we're obviously talking about a a major price tag there. So long-term care policies, they exist to prevent basically a complete wiping out of your financial assets should you need assistance in one of those facilities. So while it's expensive, and we don't recommend that you get it before the 55 to 60-year-old range, because you don't want to be paying $4,000 a year for this coverage for 40 or 50 years. So it makes sense to wait until around that time and then consider getting those policies. Very cool. All right. One last question for you. The FI community has very few dogmas, but one that Brad and I have been accused of rightly is our passionate love affair with VTSAX. We rightly do probably deserve the criticism for that. My question to you, and this is actually from Alan, is while VTSAX dominates a conversation in FI, when should someone consider index funds in international, emerging markets, small cap, and, and REITs? When is a good time frequency to rebalance your portfolio? Kyle, what are your thoughts? So there's a few questions there. I guess uh, rebalancing is, I'll go with an easy, quick one real quick. What I do is we usually rebalance quarterly, and that's kind of an industry standard uh, just to keep things in line with what your risk tolerances are and what your goals are for the funds that are that are invested. But yes, the VTSAX uh, sacred cow. I would say, in my humble opinion, that I would never invest all in VTSAX. And this comes from just a simple home bias that most people carry. The fact that we live in a country that is very friendly towards business and growth and very uh, entrepreneurship uh, focused that we, a lot of the largest companies in the world are based here and have international operations. I know that on other podcasts, you've had guests that have talked about the international exposure that you get by simply being invested in the U.S. stock market. And it's, it's very true, but you do get some benefit by uh, directly investing in these other funds that focus internationally. Some of that involves currency diversification. Some of it involves being invested in 
more small cap international, which would be like emerging markets, things like that. It really does take away that home bias from the situation right now. The U.S. does well, but maybe not in the future. That's that's part of diversification. I think it was Andrew Carnegie talked about the best way to make the most money is to focus on one thing and that thing alone. But it's also a very risky way. You know, there's a lot of people that have focused on one thing and one thing alone and have not done well and have really gone down. So I would say from a diversification standpoint, you do gain a little bit more from having some of these other asset classes and especially geographically. Fair enough. Danny, any thoughts on that? Speaking to that risk that Kyle said, having a split within your stock portfolio of U.S. and international stocks provides a reduction in risk. You know, in the 30% to 40% international exposure area, we're, we're looking at maybe a half a percent reduction in volatility. So there is value to be had there from a risk reduction standpoint, but also, you know, they perform at different rates at different times. So this past year, the international market has outperformed the U.S. market. So that's something to consider how it it flows in cycles. So definitely important to include international and those other diversification areas. Now, when we are looking at rebalancing, we don't use a time-based rebalancing methodology. We do actually based on bands. So if you're going to be a 60% stock investor, if you get above 65% stocks, we bring you back down to 60%. Or if you're at 60% and the market goes down, you get down to 55%, we'll bump you back up to 60. We use that methodology, which is slightly different. Awesome. Danny, are those automatic rebalancing or do you have to contact the client each time you do that? With the way that our investment agreement is, we can do that uh, without consulting with the client and we have software that handles it for us. Gotcha. And guys, in your experience, do you see... Many of your clients or many, let's say, clients of other CFPs invested in index funds generally, whether that's total U.S. stock market, international, whatever it may be. Or do you still see a lot of people invested in actively managed mutual funds? I would say if they were my clients, they're all index funds. Uh, That's the way I manage their money if they choose to have me do it. The way my business model works is I have a planning fee and then they can choose to implement investment recommendations on their own and it's cheaper for them to do that just as the FI community knows to do it yourself or they can have me do it and I charge assets under management fee to do that to cover my time for for the rebalancing and the portfolios but I don't give clients the option I think the low cost index funds are the way to go so I don't give them the option if they have me managing investments if they end up doing it on them on their own, my recommendation is still to use low-cost index funds, but I can't make sure that they do that. I do see still a lot of new clients, or when I do a financial review for people that are not ongoing clients, their active, active funds are still popular. They still have the allure of this fund has done well for the last three years, or this fund has done well this year, or it has a five-star Morningstar rating that still appeals to some people and they choose to go that route, even though it may have a 1% expense ratio as opposed to a 0.04 or 0.10 expense ratio. Kyle, what if a client came to you with that scenario where they, let's say, have been investing in actively managed mutual funds for years and they have significant unrealized gains, right? Like they haven't sold these, it's just paper gains. 
but we know how detrimental fees are. Like, is there a strategy at, from the CFP perspective to get people out of these extraordinarily expensive mutual funds and into low cost index funds? Like, how would you talk someone through that? So if someone came to me with a large amount of unrealized gains in actively managed funds, so I guess my first question would be whether that's in a qualified account or non-qualified, and, and that's a retirement account, tax-advantaged, or a non-retirement account, because harvesting those gains could have a significant implication. I have, being in Oregon, I have a few clients that were earlier on investors in Nike and Intel. So large capital gains that that's single stock, but the same same principle applies that if you have had bought, say, an American funds actively managed fund 20 years ago, you may have a lot of gains in a, in a taxable account that if you sell may really negatively impact your taxes. So basically with that, we would look at, can we harvest a little bit amount, little bit each year to try to move it into index funds and to convince them to move it to index funds. I usually cite research. There's a lot of research that shows low cost, index funds outperform actively managed funds quite often simply because the actively managed funds have to cover their fee before they even get to the market performance. And then they have to create an alpha above that. And the other thing is too, there's also a, uh, if I can remember what it's called, survivorship bias. So the stats for actively managed mutual funds can oftentimes be skewed to even seem better than they actually are because the ones that are still around are the ones that have survived. A lot of the ones that were actively managed have simply disappeared. And the months, the funds have been merged into other ones that were doing better at the same investment company. So you kind of have a skewing in that performance uh, situation. But I cite the research and it, it kind of directs clients that way. And some clients, you know, for me, it's a, it has to be a philosophical fit to be a client. So if they are not on board with that, that's okay, but they're not a good fit for, for working with me because that would be a, an ongoing uh, contest of us debating the, the right way to invest. Danny, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, the only other things that we would look for is potential for any other losses in the account. Maybe um, they also own a different fund that has a loss that we can offset the gain with. Uh, we certainly try and pare it down, just like Kyle said, over time. Should there be a downturn and that gain get reduced significantly, that's a much better time to hop out of that fund and into a more passive fund. Going backwards a little bit, our investment philosophy centers in on those passive funds, but we do think that there might be a little bit of value to be had with some active managers, maybe in the international bond space or emerging markets where the markets are less efficient and therefore the passive funds may not work as well as an active manager that has some boots on the ground, so to speak. So we think there's a little bit of incremental value to be added there, but it's certainly not a major portion or even a, a minor portion of our portfolios. Very cool, guys. Thank you for being just really just answering the questions in a very straightforward way, just kind of giving us your own particular perspective on it. I think our audience is going to get so much value from this conversation we have a couple things that we'd like to do before we let you go today. One is we know that people are going to want to reach out to you respectively. Danny, what's the best way for someone to reach you? The best way would be through LinkedIn. My LinkedIn URL is linkedin.com slash in slash Daniel Kenny one. And you can find me there or through the company website where SBSB, it's Sullivan, Bruett, Spiros and Blaney. So SBSB LLC.com and you can find my bio there. 
in the future, I'm looking forward to blogging on the ChooseFI site. So if you can wait a little while till I get my articles up and running, then maybe you can find me there. Super excited about that. Thanks so much. And I can't wait to, to read more about your own, your own story, your own path to FI on the ChooseFI domain. That's going to be really wonderful. Kyle, what's the best way for people to reach you? And I apologize to your wife ahead of time because I am sure that people are going to want to reach out. But <laughs> <laughs> regardless, nothing we can do about that now. What's the best way for people to reach you? No, that's totally fine. I'm always willing to chat with anybody. Um, so Clarity Financial LLC dot com is my website. That's my company. If you just Google Kyle Mast, it'll be one of the top ones that comes up. Or letters to Randon. Randon is my son. I started oh, blogging just a few months ago, uh, just writing letters to my son on financial independence and intentional living, just kind of fun little short letters. If people want to read those, it's just something that I'm doing for fun on my own. But that's that's where you can reach me. You can send me a message on there or even schedule like a an introductory phone call if if you want to chat a little bit. This community is awesome, so I want to make sure that I am available as someone that has a need. All right, guys. Now, on most shows, that would be the end of the episode, but on this show, we want to give you a chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Can't wait. Oh, yeah. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, guys, uh, we'll start with Kyle. Question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. I think I have to go with Becoming Minimalist by uh, Joshua Becker. He writes just a really good blog about minimalism, but not uh, in the extreme sense, just a good good way of living life and not letting possessions get too important in what you're doing. And it's always nice for me to have a blog that has pretty much nothing to do with finances. He talks sometimes about finances, but it's just nice to, to dive into something else other than the financial thing, since I'm doing that all the time. I get it, man. I totally get it. All right, Danny, what about you? What's your, what's your favorite blog that's not your own? I went the opposite of Kyle. I went nerdy on this one. So uh, Michael Kitsis's Nerd's Eye View, that's a really in-depth financial planning blog, and he posts very frequently. So there's a lot of content out there, but it's all amazing content. Yeah. You know, Brad, we really do need to do that. Let's reach out to Michael this year and see if we can't get him to come on the show. Yeah, agreed. If you, he's a great guy. I mean, if you want to talk about starting businesses, financial planning, investments, he is just, he's a brain and that's a really good resource. That is awesome. Okay. All right. Now this, we're going to, we're going to zone in on one article. Question number two, Danny, your favorite article of all time. So a former colleague of mine left to start his own financial planning firm. And he has a blog on that website. But one of his entries is The Secret to Achieving Your Dreams. Basically, when he left uh, my firm, he went and moved to Barcelona. And he's working on, a, he's built his own financial planning firm and working remotely. So his secret to distill it is he has a monthly meeting. So similar to your State of the Union uh, once a year discussion, he has a monthly meeting with his wife to talk about the finances, also family, whether you know we're going to get to see my parents or my wife's parents this month or anything to do in, in our household, you know, whether I need to hang up those pictures in the bedroom or whatever. 
getting together with friends. And then finally, the, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. And what should we be putting, you know, any extra time or money into that we can do to achieve our dream? Hashtag BHAG. Bring it on. <laughs> I love it. All right, Kyle, and to you, your favorite article of all time. I'm going to jump on the Michael Kitsis nerd's eye view. Also, you can kind of tell that as financial planners really take a lot of, get a lot of value out of that, that site. He had a guest post written by Sophia Barra in 2017, setting up and starting your own RIA for less than $10,000. I was really, I was at another firm and I was really considering launching my own business and just seeing a well laid out plan of how she did it very cost efficiently. I did not make much at all in my first two years of business. So keeping costs down was really important. And that was the article that made me consider it very seriously. And it has probably been one of the better decisions I've made in my life. Isn't that amazing when you read one article and it literally changes your whole life? That's astounding. Yeah. All right, Kyle, we'll go to question number three with you. Your favorite life hack? Well, we kind of already covered it, uh, the planning retreats with my wife. So every year I actually do a business planning retreat the two nights before. So I do my own uh, business planning. I update our budget. I update our finances, uh, my goals for the business and our life in general, how many hours I'm going to be working in the business, how many hours I'm going to be spending with family. And then I have my wife join me for the next two nights. And we go through and have just a really simple Word document that we have one year, three year, five year, 10 year, 20 year goals on. And we update those each year. And anytime someone asks me like the one thing that you would do that would make a difference as far as propelling you forward, I always say planning retreats, that extra time away where you're not in the business, you're not in the busyness of life. We'll go to the Oregon coast, get a super cheap group on somewhere in the middle of October and just. The decisions we've made on those planning retreats have changed the course of our lives exponentially from buying houses to starting a business. Hands down, best life hack. That's really cool advice. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing. Danny, your favorite life hack. So aside from the LinkedIn page that I said earlier, I don't have any social media accounts. That has freed up an enormous amount of my time. Every morning when I'm laying in bed, I'm I'm not worried about checking my Instagram feed or Facebook or anything like that. And that will kind of play into the advice for your younger self question as well. Um, so I'll kind of leave that portion aside for now. But not having social media or deleting those accounts has really freed up basically hours of my day. It's very cool, especially I find myself spending more and more time on social media. So I definitely get it. <laughs> I definitely understand. Question number four, Danny, your biggest financial mistake. I'd have to say investing. When I was in college, I took a course on technical analysis. So trading stocks based on how their stock chart looked, basically. So I did that for a number of years after graduating school and can't say that I really got anywhere with it. You know, I had a lot of emotional ups and downs. So that's something that I've moved away from recently. And it's really helped me steady my emotional life as well as my financial life. And Kyle, your biggest financial mistake? Uh, this is a hard one. Um, student loans, I think would be uh, just because I went to two private colleges, one for two years, and then I finished it was a two year college and then finished up my bachelor's at another private college. So when I came out of college, I had probably about 45,000 in student loans. When my wife and I got married, we had about 75,000 in 
student loans and consumer debt total. And it's kind of a tough answer because I actually did get a lot of benefit out of those schools and I wouldn't probably have been able to go to them. Otherwise, I got my first job at the financial planning firm due to a connection at one of those schools and had great mentorship through that. So it's kind of tough. You know, you look back at kind of mistakes you made, but they kind of also propelled you. And it also taught me how to aggressively kill a student loan debt, which we knocked out pretty fast. Yeah, I think that if I had to do it over again, I'd try to figure something out where I could come out 75000 in the black instead of the red. I think there certainly are ways of doing it. I think you're, it's interesting though. It's the exception, not the rule, but if you can highlight enough profiles of people that have done it and get enough examples of the different ways to tackle it, um, it goes from something that kind of seems like it's impossible at the outset where you the obvious choice is just student loans to, Oh yeah, maybe I could just try this instead. Most definitely. You guys have highlighted, you have really good people on this podcast too, that have highlighted a lot of the good ways to move forward in that type of, if they think college is an important thing, then there's other ways of doing it. Yeah, I hope to get a lot more profiles over the next several years. That's certainly like on our list. That's our BHAG, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Question number five, Kyle, the advice you would give your younger self. Again, this is super hard because I feel like the path that I've taken, and I think some of your other guests have, have said this too, the path that I've taken has led me to where I am now, and I'm, I'm really happy with where I am now. I would say, and this is maybe framed it for me, thinking about what I will teach my son, and that would be save 50% of your income uh, right from the first dollar that you make and, and invest that. So I, I actually have a client who makes, oh, 26,000 a year. And he has a larger portfolio. He's 33 than a lot of my clients because his dad taught him when he worked on a farm in Kansas to save half of his income from everything that he made. And he invested it and it had grown substantially. And he lives with his family, his wife and three kids at a youth camp where lodging is provided and food is provided to a certain extent. And they have just done super well with their finances. So I think that would be the 50% of your income because I've seen a real life example of it. And in working with more and more clients, that's something that's missing. That's so awesome. All right, uh, Danny, the advice you would give your younger self. Uh, This goes along with the social media diet I said before, but get out of your echo chamber. So whether it's your friend group that dominates the discussion and your thoughts about one specific thing or whether it's a political thing, if you open your mind to different ideas, then, you know, there's a lot more information out there that you don't even know exists. And that can really expand your horizons, whether it's financial independence or um, rock climbing. You know, you don't know what's out there until you release yourself from the chains that you're currently in and look and see what else you might be interested in. Yeah. And I certainly think you're talking to some kindred spirits here, Danny, obviously that, you know, people who have found financial independence are, are willing to think differently and, and expand their horizons. So I hope everybody takes that to heart and don't get stuck in, in your little myopic thinking, you know, just continually learn. I think that's really the most succinct way I would describe that. So yeah, I love that. All right, guys, we have one bonus question. And uh, basically, we're trying to highlight here, we talk a lot about financial independence and cutting expenses, obviously, but we all spend money and we all get value out of certain purchases. Like, what was your favorite purchase that you've made on Amazon.com in the last year? Danny, I'll start with you. Uh, So going along the DIY route, 
I purchased brake pads and rotors for my car and taught myself how to do it on YouTube. I drove to work this morning safely, and so everything's working great. So <laughs> taught myself how to do that, and now I'm even more confident. You'll take on that transmission next year, right? Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kyle, what about you? I stole mine from a previous episode. Someone mentioned that a robotic vacuum was the best purchase they made. And I purchased it the same day on Amazon when I, when I listened to that episode. I thought, man, I've been trying to do more things where I spend money to purchase back time. It's something that Tim Ferriss actually talks a lot about in a lot of his stuff. And I've really tried to take it to heart. And my goodness, a robotic vacuum has given us so much time. That thing runs one or two times a day. And we have the cleanest floors we have ever had. Not that, not that we didn't vacuum much before, but we have so much more time. It is amazing. I tell you guys, I'm going to about to go all in. See, the problem was when we mentioned it the first time with JW from the green swan, I had just gotten the Instapot and it was just too close. You know, I just can't, I can't do both. <laughs> I can't announce it, but if I get this plug three months later, it's going right back on the save to wish list. So, uh, thanks for, <laughs> we have four, four or five friends that have done it since then. And they all say the same thing. <laughs> I love it. So which one did you guys go with? Is that the Roomba? Uh, no, we did the one that had the highest reviews, I think, on Amazon at the time. It's, it was like 215 bucks. D-Bot, I think, is the brand. Nice. It worked for us. I don't know. I, I usually just go off of what the reviews are, so I don't have to spend <laughs> too much time researching it. I hear you. Get that time back, right? Um, yep. <laughs> all right, guys. Hey, so just to our audience to let you know, the links to both of their profiles and how to reach them is going to be in the show notes for today's episode. If you want to get access to the show notes, just go to choosefi.com slash subscribe. To Kyle and Danny, you guys are awesome. You rock. Thanks so much, one, for being a part of our community, and two, being willing to come on the show, talk about maybe some uncomfortable questions, and also where you guys really are able to highlight your skills and what you bring to the table. I think this brought so much value both to me personally and to Brad, but also to our audience and to our community that's trying to figure out how to add this extra, this person, add this person to their team. And I think that that absolutely makes sense. So we appreciate you guys coming on the show. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to give back. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. You guys are doing great stuff. Keep up the good work. Will do, fellas. All right, guys, thank you so much for being here and for taking the time with us. This was really wonderful. And to our community, thank you for listening, for being a part of this. I hope you got value from the show. I hope you've been getting value from the show. But this it's really fun to be able to have this this crowdsourced-based episode that's really all we're doing is we're taking the questions from the people in our community in the Facebook group and then turning them into conversations on the show. And I love just being part of that. If you want to join our community, just go to choosefi.com slash Facebook. It's our private group, over 8,000 people in the community. It's growing by about 2,000 people a month. So we just hope that we will see you there. Thank you for being a part of this community. If you want to support us, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to choosify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to choosify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of Fi, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of Fi, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of Fi. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.